Well, amen. Let me add my word of welcome, especially if you are visiting with us today. We're grateful that you're here. We're going to be in the 139th Psalm. Alistair Begg once said there are two keys that are essential for Christian growth, the love of God and the glory of God. And what he meant by that was if, if we are to trust and follow Jesus every day, if we're to grow in our relationship with Jesus, if we're to honor him in our lives, then we must remember how much God loves us and we must remember why God is worthy of our trust and our devotion. So this month, we want to spend our time focused on the latter. We, we want to think this month about why God is worthy of our lives. Our mission statement says that we are about leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And you hear Pastor Josh and, and other pastors frequently and rightly calling us to trust Jesus, to follow Jesus, to depend upon Jesus, to hope in Jesus. And so for four weeks, we we want to ask why. More specifically, we want to learn what is it about God that calls us and compels us to trust him, to follow him, to depend upon him, and to hope in him. And this, this week, we want to think about trust. What is it about God that would call us and compel us to trust him with our lives. As Solomon said in Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. What is it about God that leads us to unequivocally and absolutely trust him in every situation, in every circumstance of life? In 2010, my doctor discovered that I had an aneurysm on my aorta right above my heart valve. And... um. He, he said that that aneurysm is, is expanded to the point that it's going to rupture probably within six to eight months and you're going to die. So I thought, well, can we do anything about that? And um, he said, yeah, you had no cardiologist. I did. So I went to the cardiologist. He, he confirmed that. He said, I'm going to set you up with a doctor at Emory, which was really encouraging to me because, you know, Emory has a good reputation. So he gave me the name of the surgeon and I, I, I thought, okay, I'm going to go to Emory and have this surgeon, you know, they got to crack me open and they got to put me on a heart lung machine, pack my heart in ice, you know, cut away the aorta, put on a synthetic one better than the original. It's, uh, it's kind of a complicated deal. So I, I, I went home and got on the internet and I looked up the doctor and I, I found out the surgeon was actually the head of cardiothoracic surgery at Emory. Well, that's pretty good. And then I found out that he was the past president of the American Association of Cardiothoracic Surgeons. I I discovered that he was widely recognized as the leading cardiothoracic surgeon in all of the southeastern United States and arguably was the best in all of America. And so by the time I met him, I honestly had very little anxiety about this surgery because it it seemed to me that he had all the knowledge and all the ability to deal with whatever issue I had. 
And we fast forward to last year and my granddaughter, who's now my heart buddy, needed open heart surgery. And, um, you know, so she, she was five years old. That's kind of an anxious thing, you know. So we're, we're up at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. We met with the surgeon and, and um, you know, the surgeon made this statement. He, my daughter and son-in-law were there and Beverly and I were there. He says, you know, he said, I know that this is like your daughter, your granddaughter, so it's a big deal. But, but honestly, this is, this is a pretty routine surgery. And so I, I went home and looked him up on the internet. And um, you know what? I, I found out that he had done his residency at Emory and he was the star student of my surgeon. In fact, he, he had won the award that Emory gave that was named after my surgeon as, as the leading resident um, in, in his training. So I, I, honestly, I thought, that's pretty good. I went into this thinking, how, 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 can, how can I possibly trust this guy with, with my life? How, how can I trust this guy with my daughter's life? And, and really what brought me to that place of, of real trust was that these guys had the knowledge and the ability to do what needed to be done. Well, that's exactly what David discovered about God. David discovered in his life And he expressed in Psalm 139 that God is all-knowing and God is all-powerful. And because of the knowledge and the power of God, he can be trusted in everything. He can be trusted to deal with my everyday life situation because he knows and he is able. So let's look at what David says, the 139th Psalm. We'll begin in verse one. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would take count, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Now, I want to draw our attention, first of all, to, to verse 6, where David uses the word wonderful, and he uses that word as an adjective that modifies knowledge. So David tells us that God's knowledge is wonderful. He has wonderful knowledge. Now, my mom likes to use the word wonderful the same way that a lot of you like to use the word awesome, basically for everything. So I'll say, uh, mom, how are you doing? Oh, I'm wonderful. How was your lunch? Oh, it was wonderful. How how was your bed last night? It was wonderful. 
How are the potato chips? They're wonderful. So, so basically, she uses wonderful to, to mean anything from good to healthy to comfortable to delicious, right? But that, that really fails to grasp what David is getting at when he speaks about the wonder of God's knowledge. It, it really means, as the word expresses, to stand in wonder, it has the idea of something that is extraordinary, something that is breathtaking in its magnitude and its magnificence. So when I look at something, I'm not able to take it all in. I think of the stars. If you ever, if you ever been out at, at night out in a rural area where you're away from the city lights and you, you look up at the stars and it's, it, the magnitude and the magnificence of the heavens are just unbelievable. It'll take your breath away. And, and you understand what Isaiah said when he said, lift up your eyes and see who created these stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong and powerful, not a single one is missing. You look up at the, at the heavens and you remember what David said in Psalm 19.1 that the heavens declare the glory of God and you think God created all of those stars, hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxies, thousands of them visible to the naked eye. As, as one preacher said, he, he screwed the stars in their silver sockets in glory. I like that. It's like you look at this sky filled with the handiwork of God and the stars. And, and if we're honest, it's kind of, it's kind of breathtaking. It's, it's beyond our ability to, to take it all in. Well, David takes that idea and he applies it to the knowledge of God. So he's telling us that God's knowledge is, is extraordinary. It's incomprehensible. It's breathtaking. It causes us to stand back and wonder. So this, this psalm is really emphasizing that God is all-knowing. It's emphasizing the, the wonder of God's knowledge and how that became foundational for a life of faith in David's life. So what I want us to do is think about four truths about God's knowledge that hopefully God will use to to build a life of trust when we think about every day trusting Jesus. So, so here's number one, God's truth or God's knowledge, excuse me, God's knowledge is infinite. To, to be infinite means to be without boundaries. So there are no limits to God's knowledge. David puts it this way in verse in verse six, he said, God's knowledge is, is too high. It's like a wall. It's like a cliff that is simply inaccessible because of its height. When, when, I, went to, um, when I went to Nepal um, back, it was a while ago, a couple years ago, um, it didn't take me long to realize I, I'd made a mistake. Um, so I, I realized pretty quickly, this is a young man's game and, and I'm an old man. So, you know, we're, we're, we're going along in day one and uh, we'd been going like about eight hours and, um, and, and we were supposed to be going to this pass, you know, up this top of this mountain. And, uh, and you couldn't see the top where we were going because of the forest. It was thick forest and, and there, was, there was fog. And so I asked our guide, Porfu, I said, I said Porfu, how, how far is it to the top? And he said, it's about another hour. So we, we trekked for another hour and 
I said, Porfu, how, how far is it to the top? He said, maybe 45 more minutes. So we, we trekked for 45 more minutes. And I said, Porfu, where is the top? And he said, we'll, we'll be there in about 15 minutes. And we, we, we hiked for another 30 minutes. And I, I, I was exasperated. I was really just wiped out. And I said, Porfu, there is no top. <laughs> this is the way I felt. Well, David has said God's knowledge is that way. It's, it's, it's like a mountain and there's, there's no top that God knows everything. That God possesses all knowledge and he possesses perfect knowledge. He knows all things perfectly and he knows all things perfectly well. There are no limits to his knowledge. Nothing can be added to God's knowledge. Nothing can be taken away from his knowledge. God never learns. God never forgets. God is never surprised. God never makes a discovery. Nothing ever happens that hasn't been in the mind of God for all eternity. He knows every cause and every result. He knows all minds and every mind. He knows every thought, every motivation, every attitude, and every action. He knows every creature and every personality. He knows every past every present and every future. He knows everything visible and invisible. He knows everything in heaven, everything in hell, and everything on earth. He knows everything in life and everything in death. He knows everything. His knowledge is wonderful. Now, the last time that I, I preached here at Prince was New Year's Day. And uh, when, when I was getting ready to preach, I, 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 I found out that there were people who had been up at midnight praying. And that made me feel really good. I'm like, wow, we got church members up at midnight praying for me? And then I realized, no, they're, they're actually up at midnight praying against the kicker for Ohio State. Well, <laughs> that changed things a little bit. But I, I, I came to church and I, I overheard a guy say, I knew he was gonna miss it. And I thought, no, you didn't. And, and even if you guessed, well, it's a 50-50 thing, right? Well, when, when I watched that kick, I did know he was going to miss. I knew absolutely he's going to miss because I'm too old to stay up to midnight. I mean, when he missed that kick, I'd been asleep for like over two hours. So I didn't even see the kick until Sunday evening when I was done with everything and got home and watched a video and I'm like, I know he's going to miss. <laughs> and sure enough, he did. Now we say hindsight is 2020, and sometimes we can make educated guesses, but when we talk about the knowledge of God, God doesn't know everything because he has hindsight. God doesn't know everything because he makes a good educated guess. God knows everything because he is infinite in his being. And because he is infinite in his being, anything that could be said about God is infinite. So God has infinite knowledge. His knowledge is wonderful. Secondly, David reminds us that his knowledge is intimate. God's knowledge is intimate. Verse one, notice what he says. You know about me. Verse two, you know when I 
Verse 4, you know my words. And then David uses these synonyms for knowledge throughout the first six verses. God perceives, God discerns, God searches out, God is familiar with. And and every one of those is pointing to David. God perceives me, he discerns me, he searches out me, he's familiar with me, he knows me. So David says God's knowledge is not just comprehensive, it's not just infinite, it is personal, it is compassionate, it's warm in that it's manifested in an intimate care for his people. So what David reminds us is the all-knowing God is not a detached, impersonal force who has nothing to do with us, but rather he is a personal God who intimately knows us and is at work in the very details of our lives. Now, this is a wonderfully encouraging truth. Do you understand today, you are not the product of random chance mutations developing over time in an impersonal universe whose future is unknown and whose thoughts and actions are ultimately meaningless. But rather, you are part of the eternal plan of a loving, good creator who knows you personally and intimately and knows all your ways. So that means there's there's no enemy that can make an accusation that God doesn't already know. There's no skeleton that can come tumbling out of a closet to expose a past that will surprise God. There's no unknown weakness that will come to light about which he is unaware. There's there's no past failure that can be reported that will cause God's mind to change about you. God already knows your strengths and your weaknesses. He knows your struggles and your defeats. He knows you're going out and you're coming in. He knows your deepest needs. He knows your todays and your tomorrows because he made you and he fits you for his purpose. God's knowledge is infinite and it is intimate. Thirdly, we want to see that God's knowledge is infallible. Look down at verse 14. In verse 14, what David does is he ties together what God knows with what God does. You notice he even uses the word wonderful, so there's a really clear connection. Okay, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. So God's perfect knowledge is seen in his power to execute his plan. So in verse 16, David says, before I was ever even created, you had ordained all of my days. Everything about me was known and it was ensured, it was secure, not just because God knows, but because God has the power to execute his knowledge in a perfect way. God can do that because he's all-powerful. He controls all things. You know, the reason that we laugh at meteorologists so often, and if you're a meteorologist, we're not laughing at you, we're laughing with you, is, is, is because they miss it so often. Well, most of the time they're right, but when a, a meteorologist says 
90% chance of rain. He, he's making an educated guess based upon all the information that he has. He can't guarantee what the weather's going to be like because he can't control the weather. But you see, God can. God can make a definitive, absolute statement about your future because he controls all the events of his world. We saw this in, in one of my favorite stories about Jesus in Mark 4. Jesus and, and the disciples are in, in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. And, and the, the Bible says that, that a storm came up. It, it, was a, it was a tempest that was marred by ferocity. I mean, it was so ferocious that the, the disciples, some of whom were fishermen and spent their days on the Sea of Galilee, were terrified. In fact, the Bible describes them as, as terrified they were convinced that they were going to die, and Jesus was asleep. They woke Jesus up, and they said, Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die? And Jesus got up and walked to the front of the boat, and, and in his language, one word, still, be still. And immediately, the water was calm as glass. Immediately, the rain stopped falling. Immediately, the winds stopped blowing. You know what the Bible says about the disciples? They were terrified because of the storm. When Jesus calmed the storm, the Bible says that they became exceedingly terrified. The calmer the storm, the more afraid they became. And they cried out, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Well, who he is, is the son of God who has authority over the weather, who has authority over all of creation. So for all things that God knows, he knows the end result because he has the power to execute his plan knowing every conceivable consequence and power. So there's nothing that God knows, there's nothing that God wills to do that he cannot do. Listen, God is not up in heaven wringing his hands with anxiety, hoping that somebody down here will be kind enough to come along and help him to do what he wants to do. God possesses all power in and of himself, so he has in and of himself the sufficiency to execute his knowledge perfectly. He is, after all, the Almighty One who spoke creation into existence he is the one who raises up and tears down. He is the one who guides his creation and our lives according to his providential plan. He is the one who rules and reigns over all things and laughs at those who think they can triumph over him. No wonder Jeremiah said rhetorically in Jeremiah 32, 27, is there anything too hard for God? So what David is emphasizing is that in all of life, God knows what he's doing and God is able to do whatever he wills. His knowledge is infallible. He cannot be wrong. Now, my attention was drawn to Judges 13 when I was studying this. Because in Judges 13, there, there's something interesting. Um, in, in Judges 13, the word wonderful is used as an adjective, just as David uses it in Psalm 139. Now, here's what was cool to me. The word translated wonderful is only used two times in the whole Old Testament when it's an adjective. It's translated as a verb, as a noun, but as an 
adjective only two times. In Psalm 139, God has wonderful knowledge. In Judges 13, God says he has a wonderful name. Well, that intrigued me. So I, I went back and I, I just began to look at Judges 13 from the perspective of, of an illustration. And this is, this is kind of what's going on. Judges 13 is the birth narrative of Samson. And the people of Israel, we are told, are living, doing evil before God. They are so mired in sin that they, they, they've become accustomed to their oppression. They're being oppressed by the Philistines and they're so mired in their sin that they don't even cry out for help from God. But God, because he is unbelievably merciful, he comes to help them anyway. And so the story introduces us to an unnamed, unknown woman. And this is what we know about her because God tells her, God comes to her and he says, I know that you are barren. I know that you can't have children. But he says, you are going to conceive and you're going to have a son and that son who would be Samson will be the deliverer who is raised up by God to fight the Philistines who were oppressing Israel. Now, when Manoah, who is the woman's husband, heard this, Manoah couldn't wrap his mind around this. He couldn't comprehend what was happening in his life. And so he had a conversation with God. And he asked God, he said, can, can you tell me what your name is so that we can honor you when all of this comes true? And it's in response to that question that God answers. And this is what he says. He says, why do you ask me my name when it is wonderful? When it is wonderful. And, and what, what, is, what is really interesting to me is, that this story is expressing the same truth about God that David expressed in the 139th Psalm, that God knew what was going on. And in spite of the fact that a woman was barren, God was able to move by his power to provide what the people needed. And so it's, it's almost as though God is saying to Manoah, he said, you, you shouldn't need to ask what my name is because you've seen the supernatural knowledge and power of God made manifest. And so God is saying, look, when, when you see what's going on, when you see what is needed, and when you realize that God knows exactly what's going on, and you realize that God has a plan, and that God has the power to execute that plan, when you're able to grasp that God knows the people need a deliverer, even when they don't know it, when you understand that God is going to bring forth a child from a woman that he knows is barren, he's going to enable a barren woman to conceive and bear a son, and you see all of this happening, what you should do is stand back and wonder. What you should do is step back and say, wow, this is a breathtaking God who has knowledge and power that I can absolutely trust because it is an infallible power coupled with an all-powerful being. But this is what God does. God comes into situations that we cannot comprehend. He comes into situations that we cannot resolve. 
And with perfect knowledge and wisdom, he works out his plan by his power. So we're left breathlessly thinking, I can trust this God. In fact, the birth narrative of Samson is actually one of seven birth narratives in the Bible that flow from Genesis 3.15 that reveal to us God's unfolding eternal plan that reveal his infallible knowledge leading up to the work of Jesus. In Genesis 3.15, God gave a promise in light of the fall that men, was now, men were now separated from God. They were alienated from God and God made a promise to Eve. One of your descendants will be a savior who will come and he will crush the head of the enemy. He will destroy the work of the devil. And beginning with that promise all through the Old Testament, we have the the unfolding of God's eternal plan leading up to Jesus. And, And in that story, there are seven birth narratives. The first is Sarah. Sarah gives birth to Isaac. The second is Rebecca. Rebecca gives birth to Jacob. The third is Jochebed. She gives birth to Moses. The fourth is Manoah's wife. She gives birth to Samson. The next is Hannah. She gives birth to Samuel. The next is Elizabeth. She gives birth to John the Baptist. And the seventh is Mary who gives birth to Jesus. Now listen, listen to this story. Listen to what's true of these moms. Sarah. Barren, Rebecca, barren, Manoah's wife, barren, Hannah's wife, or Hannah, barren, excuse me, Elizabeth, barren, Jochebed, not barren. But this is what happens with Jochebed. Pharaoh, who is the emperor, the king, over the greatest power in the world at that time, he he makes a proclamation. He says, every male baby born to a Hebrew is to be cast into the Nile River. We're bringing all the forces of the government to make sure that no Hebrew boy lives. The next verse, a Levite went out, took to himself his wife, knew her. She conceived and brought forth a son named Moses. And what we see as God unfolds his plan is God stepping into situations where nobody knew what to do, where nobody was able to do what was necessary and showing his perfect knowledge and power. So by the time we get to Mary and the birth of Jesus, we're prepared for a God who has a plan and can make that plan happen no matter what. If she's a virgin, she can give birth. If all the government comes against him to kill him, he can escape. God has laid out a plan for us. God knew we needed a deliverer, not a flawed deliverer like Samson, but a perfect Savior who would deliver us from our sin, one who would have no sin of his own, one who would not be cursed by Adam's fall. And so he came to a virgin and, and he said by his angel, Mary, you're going you're gonna to conceive and give birth to a child. And, and Mary's response was, I, I've, I've never known a man. How can this happen? And this is what the angel said. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son 
And is this, is in, in her sixth month, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary heard this angel say, listen, Mary, God has a plan. God knows what he's doing. God has the power to carry out that plan. And you know what Mary said in Luke one thirty-eight in response to that? Okay. Okay. Whatever you say. Mary understood God has a plan and he's working out that plan and he can be trusted with that plan. And so in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law that he might redeem those who are under the law. And the Lord Jesus was indeed conceived and born to a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He defeated Satan as was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. He died to pay for our sin. He rose again to secure eternal life because God knew our need and he moved in history to provide for that need by his power. So today we stand, as it were, by the manger in Bethlehem or along the dusty roads of Galilee or beneath the blood-soaked the blood stained cross of Calvary or, or outside the empty garden tomb and we, we gaze in wonder at the knowledge and the wisdom of God on display in Jesus and realize by the power of God, he has done for us what we didn't even know we needed him to do. And he has come in the person of his son and accomplished our redemption. And we sing songs like, how great thou art when I threw wood and forest glade, I wonder and hear the birds swing, sing sweetly in the trees. I look out or lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. I want to sing how great thou art because I see the knowledge and the power of God in creation around me. But when I, when I sing, when I think that God his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. For on that cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. I gaze in wonder at the work of the cross and see the wisdom and the power of God manifested in the work of Jesus. And I have to think, there is one who is great, who is worthy of my trust. There I see the all-knowing God working out his eternal plan to save sinners by his power. And I realize this is a wonderful God who can be trusted This is what the Apostle Paul shouted, as it were, at the end of of his exposition of salvation in Romans. He'd gone through all the knowledge and power of God and what he had done to redeem us. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of God or who can be his counselor? For from him and through him and to him are all things. God's knowledge is infallible. Could I just very quickly add, fourthly, that God's knowledge is invaluable. God's knowledge is invaluable. Look at verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts. David says, when I, when I realize 
the wonder of God's knowledge, it's, it's precious. It's weighty. It's beyond value. It, it becomes foundational for my life. I don't know, perhaps David is recalling his, his flights from Saul. Maybe he's, maybe he's remembering his time in the wilderness. Maybe he's recounting his battles with, with animals, with Goliath, with the Philistines. Maybe he's reliving the forgiveness of God after his grave sin with Bathsheba. But, but look what he says in verse 5. He says, you, you hem me in. Behind and before, this is actually a military term that, that would be used to, to lay siege to a city. God, God is saying to David, I, I am besieging your life. I'm surrounding your life with my knowledge and my power. And then he says, and my hand is on you. Around you, above you, is the wonderful knowledge and power of God. And David realized in every and in all circumstances and events of his life, God was at work. God was never surprised. God was never confused. God was never unaware. And this knowledge of God's knowledge is what gave birth to trust. So my life may be spinning out of control, but God knows every step. And David says, I will wonder at your knowledge. What David is trying to teach us is that in every moment of life, God knows what we need. God knows where we are. God knows what is required. And he is able to do whatever he wills. So I I don't know what my life will be like tomorrow. I don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. I don't know what your life is like today. I don't know what you're rejoicing in. I don't know what you're sorrowful over. But God knows. And the God who knows has the power to move to accomplish his will. And David says that knowledge is invaluable. That's so precious that that becomes foundational to my life. And and isn't that the why? What is it about God that calls us and compels us to trust him? Isn't it that he's the all-knowing, all-powerful God who has manifested himself perfectly in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? And this Lord Jesus Christ, I would remind you, is known as the wonderful counselor. You need advice, you need counsel, you need direction, you need strength. For unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given, and his name will be wonderful. One whose ability to counsel will take your breath away. One who not only gives you advice, but has the power to enable you to live as you trust him. I want you to listen to the words of our wonderful Savior in John chapter 10. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Lord Jesus looks to you this morning if you're his sheep and he says, listen, I know you and I have the power to keep you and I will. Why would we not trust him? Would you join me as we pray?